You're listening to the sermon series on the letter to the Philippians at Sojourn Church Midtown. In this letter, the Apostle Paul calls believers to live on the earth now as citizens of heaven. This means that Christians should find their identity not in this world, but in the world to come centered on Jesus Christ. Today's scripture reading is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Uh, thank you for reading God's word for us. Well, as you see, we're in Philippians chapter two, and um, my name is Pastor Nathan. I have the joy of opening God's word on this Father's Day. You know, I think Father's Day and Mother's Day are really interesting uh, in the way we celebrate them in our church. I've noticed them since I was a kid, is that often on Mother's Day, the tone we take is something like this. Thank you, mothers, for all you do. You're amazing. You're the best. We want to celebrate you for all your sacrifices. Here's a flower and jump in the photo booth and take a picture before you leave. However, when I think about Father's Days and my experience in the church growing up, it often goes something like this. Nice try, fathers, but you stink. Let's, let's get our acts together this year and let's lead our families. Let's do better. Let's try harder. And I say this in jest, but really I want to stop and just say thank you, fathers, for all you do. I did not have the blessing of have a, having a father when I was growing up, but I had men who poured into me throughout my life. And it has helped shape me to know what it means to be a, a man of God who shepherds and who loves my kids. And I want to remind you that the sacrifices you make for the family and the, the way that you point your children to Jesus make all the difference in the world. So please keep up the good work. Let's pray together as we open and we dig into Philippians chapter two. Father, we pause in this moment as we jump into a passage that is so familiar to, to all of us. And I ask, Lord, that you can open our eyes afresh, that we can see these verses, maybe like we've never seen them before, that they jump off the page and they, they pierce through our heart and they, they call us to the unity that we need to experience in the body and the humility that we need to show to others. May our gaze be set to you and may our hearts be transformed. We ask all these things. It's in your name we pray. Amen. 
So as we jump into chapter two, I wanna just stop for a moment and point back to Jamal's sermon last week when we looked at Philippians. Specifically, I wanna look back at Philippians 1, 27. And it says this, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. And this is what I would say. I think this one verse kind of pulls all of the book of Philippians together because it's addressing the audience, citizens of heaven, uh, Greeks and Jews and, and all the people in between who've experienced all kinds of things. It pulls them together into a new family. And the, the book declares through Paul's writing, live your life worthy of the gospel. So that's what I wanna say this morning is, as we look to the passage that as citizens, we are called to live in unity through humility, that we're called to, to cross some of the boundaries and to experience the gospel woven through the church. And Paul starts this chapter in chapter two by asking four rhetorical questions. It's really interesting. Here's what he says. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any comfort from God's love? Is there any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate toward each other? So when you first read the beginning of chapter two, uh, they seem kind of silly questions. Like, well, of course, well, of course. And that's the point. Paul is reminding us, if these things are true and they are, and here's what he says, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit and intent on one purpose. So the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, it weaves together this understanding of unity. Paul in the midst of opposition and persecution and disunity is calling the church to be unified together. But does unity mean uniformity? Does it mean that we're all supposed to be the same? Is God calling us to look the same and act the same and think the same? Well, of course not. That is not what God is doing. In fact, God intends his church to be diverse. And if we've done one thing over the last few years is we exalt Jesus and the gospel, we are saying, let us celebrate diversity. Let us grow in diversity. And that's what Paul is saying here. He is saying we can be unified across the boundaries that we experience. Diverse in age and ethnicity and opinion and worldview and culture and in so much else because diversity within the church is a beautiful thing. And to be unified means that all our other identities, all the other things that make us who we are become secondary. Our nationality, our ethnicity, our political alignment, our cultural preferences, all of these take a backseat to our identity as citizens in heaven. Now, do they matter? Yes, all of those things matter and they matter a lot, but they do not compare with the, the kingdom and the family that we have been given in Jesus. We're called to allow the kingdom of God, the citizenship we have in heaven to shape everything else. And I know when we look at this idea of unity in the midst of diversity, it is a really hard call. It's really difficult, especially in our day and time as we're experiencing the things we are as a culture. But Paul has a word for us as we long to be unified, uh, but also experience and celebrate diversity. He's calling us to do that by cultivating humility. Let's look at verses three and four. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not look only to his own interest, but rather to the interest of others. And this is the section of Philippians that really is celebrated as the humility passage. It's the, the core content and the call for a believer or a citizen of heaven to, to celebrate what it means to 
pour out our lives for others. And what Paul is doing right here in this passage is he's connecting self-sacrificing humility with Christian unity. Meaning if we wanna cross the boundaries that we experience as brothers and sisters in Christ, one way to do that is to set aside our own needs and to serve those who are different than us, who are different than us, but we are unified around the gospel. And humility is, is one of those things that we talk about that is really easy maybe to, to think about theoretically, or we can find Bible passages, or we can read stories, but to live out in our own lives is extremely difficult. I don't know if you find that, but I find it very difficult to live out the truths that I know in my head about humility through my hands and through my feet. It, but humility, as we think about it, we need to know that it's, it's more than simply staying in the shadows, although it's that. It's more than, than keeping our head down. It's more than thinking less of ourselves. True humility is to think of yourself less and to think of others more. Humility starts with an understanding of who you are. You and I are sinners in need of grace. And it means to understand our position in life, that we are stewards under God's reign and rule. I think too often as we look at our life and we experience life, we begin to believe the lie that we are the king over our life. But here's the thing, we have a king. We are a part of God's rule and reign. True humility is to know where your identity and your hope rest. Knowing that we are in Christ allows us to experience humility because our identity, who we are, and our confidence, our hope is found in Jesus and not ourselves. And as I think about this truth, it means that our worth is not found in what we can accomplish or what people think of us. It, it means that who we are and our status and the job that we hold do not make us who we are. It means that despite our circumstances, that our value comes from the person of God and his love for us and not from anything else. When we realize these truths, when we truly believe that the only thing we have to boast about is Jesus, it allows us to live with confidence in our humility as we serve others because he is our hope. He is our truth. He is what ignites our lives with joy and it allows us to live with humility in the world. And these aren't just Paul's words. These aren't just words of of different writers of the New Testament, Jesus himself in Mark chapter 10 makes this strong statement about servanthood and humility. Starting in verse 43, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be slave to all. For even the son of man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Jesus says he's talking to his disciples. He elevates servanthood. If you want to be great in the kingdom, then serve. If service is too good for you, even the son of man came to serve. How did he serve? To give his very life as a ransom for us. So when we think about humility, our greatest call in life is not to fame or to fortune. It's not to wealth or to security. Our calling is not to build a legacy for ourselves. Our greatest calling is to pour out our lives for others. Now, I know it doesn't make any sense in our, in our culture. This is so countercultural. But the kingdom of heaven turns our understanding of the world upside down and calls us to, to bend a knee and to serve others. And when we do this, we are following in the footsteps of Jesus himself. Hear me when I say this. 
God wants you to be a servant. God has created you so that you can serve others. Now, I often have to stop. And this week, multiple times, I had to stop as I was preparing the sermon. And I had to get on my face before Jesus because my sinful heart wants to prove myself to God. My sinful heart wants to prove myself to others. And I always want to prove myself to myself to show that I belong, that I have value. And it's in these moments that God bends down and he whispers in my ear, you belong because you belong to me. You have value because you're valuable to me. I can live in humility in this world because my worth is found in Jesus. It's not found in what I can perform. It's not found in what I'm able to do or accomplish or put together. It's found in Jesus. And as I confess this to you, I bet I'm not alone. I bet many of you who are listening to this struggle with pride in your life. And this is what I would say. We have to remember that to follow Jesus, it means that we have to willingly set down our own glory so that we can serve others in the shadows. We don't serve others to be seen, but we serve others in the shadows. Now let's look back to verse three that we just read. There's a phrase in there that I think really is the gut punch of the passage. When I was reading it, I read it multiple times and there was at one point where the spirit just sucker punched me. And what he spoke to me was, Nathan, this is impossible apart from me. Here's what he said. In humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. So if we're talking about humility or service or acts of service, that's one thing. But to actually elevate the needs and desires of others above your own is something else altogether. But what does it look like to serve others to the point where our needs and our desires become secondary? I want to speak to a few groups within our church. Fathers, what would it look like to serve your wife and kids sacrificially? I want to encourage you this week and the weeks to come, every day, look for one opportunity to serve your wife and your kids in a way you normally wouldn't. Do the dishes or fold the clothes. Take that, take that off of your wife's plate. Or what if you set your phone down and asked your wife about her day or set your phone down and got on your knees and you played with your children as an act of service for them? What if after you put your kids down to bed and they're, they're sound asleep, you walk back in and maybe you, you set your hand on your children or maybe that will wake them up, you know your child, and you just cry out to God to save their souls. How can you humbly serve your wife and your kids? Find one opportunity today to go above and beyond. And then to the young men and women in our church, what would it look like to live humbly in your 20s and your 30s? And there's all kinds of things I could say right now to give you ideas, but this, I wanna say one thing. I want you to start by realizing that there is a generation that has come before you who has so much to teach you. Now I know there's this, this generational tendency and it's always been there, will always be there that the, the youngsters, my, myself, I remember growing up in my 20s and 30s and thinking that I knew more than I actually did. And now that I'm in my 40s, I'm like, oh man, I actually don't know as much as I thought I did. And I still don't. But what would it look like for the younger generation in our church to learn from the older generation. I guarantee there is so much wisdom and experience that you desperately need. So ask, humble yourself 
and ask someone to teach you. And to the older generation, what would it look like to humbly live before others? What would it look like to create a space in your life to mentor those who are younger than you? Believe it or not, that there are people in our church who would love for an older person to pour into them. So humble yourself, create space in your life, invite others to learn from you. And if you're a Christian today and you're listening to this message, what does it look like to serve others to the point where it hurts? Not to just help someone move, which you should, that, should do that. Not just to maybe help someone in with their groceries, which is amazing, but to push into service and sacrifice and humility to the point where it hurts. What would it look like to enter into a conversation solely to listen and to encourage, not to talk about yourself? What would it look like to, to slow down enough in your life to, to see the needs and to hear the needs of your neighbors and your community group members and then step in with your own time and your resources? Maybe you, in the midst of all these racial tensions and the things you see on TV and the things you're hearing in community group, maybe you're just beginning your journey into the race issues that our country has faced for 400 years. And maybe there's a, there's a doubt in your head and there are questions in your mind. What would it look like to ask someone who is further along in the journey, to ask questions and to humbly admit that you don't know all the answers, to listen, because humility means that we step down into the pain of others and listen with a willingness to change. So if this idea and these examples of living humbly before God and man seem too hard, I want to encourage us today that Paul gives us a picture of true humility and it's Jesus himself. Jesus is both our model for humility and he is our means by which we can experience humility. As we look to verses five through 11, we come to what is often called the Christ hymn. This was an early hymn that the church would sing, but one of the things it did is it helped shape the Christology or the, the theology of Christ in the early church. So what we believe about Jesus, some of this comes from this passage that helps to reinforce the truths about Jesus to the early church. And there is so much rich theology in verses five through 11 that we do not have time to cover. But I wanna hone in on one key idea. The Christ hymn calls us to adopt the same attitude and humility that Jesus had. These verses give us uh, Jesus as a model and a means. And, and when we look to Jesus as our model, we see this in two ways in the passage. First, we see his incarnation or his coming in flesh. Verse five through seven. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. The reality is that Jesus left heaven, he set aside his divine privileges, and he met us in our brokenness. That is the gospel, right? But it's important to see in this passage that Jesus did not set aside his godhood. That's not what the passage is saying. No, he was still God in every way when he came to earth. What he did was to set aside the privileges so that he could take on human form. I love what A.W. Tozer says about this. He says, he veiled his deity. He did not void his deity. You see, when Jesus came to earth, he went from being 100% God to 100% God and man. Jesus is the 200% God-man. There's a, a story told of a kingdom long ago. And in this kingdom, 
the king was a, a mighty man. He was the strongest man in all the land. And one of the villages in his kingdom uh, was carrying a pot and he was walking to the well to get water. And as he was going to the well, he tripped and he fell. And he actually fell into this deep well. When he landed, he broke both of his legs. And a lot of people in the village, they tried to help him. They threw down robes. Other strong men in the village, like they tried all they could, but no one could help them. Finally, someone said, we've got to tell the king. He's the strongest man in the land. So they told the king, the king came and he saw the plight of the man. He saw, he heard the cries of the man and the stories told that the man, the king, he took off his robe and he took off his crown and he set it on the ground and he crawled into that deep well. He threw the man over his shoulder and he climbed out and he saved the man. And that king did what no other man could do. Now, let me ask you, did the king cease being a king because he set aside his robe and his crown? Of course not. Even in the well, even in the darkest pit of the well, the king was still king in every way. And in the same way, Jesus set aside his divine privileges and took on flesh. He became a man to save us, but he did not cease being God. He was still, he was, and he still is God and man fully. In the incarnation, what we see is the extreme humanity and humility of Jesus on display. We see his character fully in his humanity and his humility. God himself, the one who created all things, came down and saved a people who could not save themselves. Now, if we stopped here, it would be such an amazing picture of the humility of Jesus. But we're given an even more powerful picture of humility in the cross. Verse seven, and when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Jesus's death on the cross is a picture of both humility and humiliation. Jesus was naked, hanging on a cross for our sins, totally humiliated, giving us his humility so we could experience transformation. But the cross is more than a model of what humility is. It is a means by which we can experience humility in our own life. The cross allows us to step out and sacrificially serve others with no regard for ourselves. Why? Because our whole self, our whole identity, our whole worth is found in the risen and glorified Jesus. Because Jesus is our means to experience humility, both to be humble and to act humble. And we need to be reminded that humility lived out is more than good work and it's more than self-effort. Humility that God calls us to is a life spent gazing at the glorified Jesus. And that's where we come to verse nine. We, we, we move from a call to unity, which a picture and a command to, to live humbly. And then we move into the glory of Jesus, the glory and the exaltation of the risen Christ. Verse nine, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. We see here that humility and unity are ultimately seen in heaven with Jesus. In the new heavens and the new earth, we'll be able to experience these fully. And this passage tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. I want you to hear me. Every knee and every tongue 
will confess that Jesus is Lord. Man, woman, angel, and demon, all created beings will fall before the face of Jesus. Everyone will be humbled before the glorified Christ. His beauty and his power and the, his awe-inspiring glory will drive us to our knees and it will cause our mouths to burst open in praise, declaring, you are God. All of us, every single one. And there's an invitation in this passage that as you gaze at the glorified Jesus, you'll be able to say with Abraham, I am but dust and ashes. You'll be able to say with David after he sinned with Bathsheba, have mercy on me and return to me the joy of my salvation. You'll be able to say with John, may he increase and I do decrease. You'll be able to say with Paul, I have an impressive resume, but I count it as nothing with knowing Jesus. And finally, you'll be able to say with Jesus himself, not my will, but the Father's. Friends, all will declare him Lord. All will call him Jesus, that he is God. So let me ask you, why wait? Why wait for something that is inevitable? Why not bend the knee now and open your mouth now and worship him now and experience the joy that is yours now? Whether it's on this side of death or the other, every knee will bow. It's a promise. And believe me, you wanna bend the knee on this side of death. Because if you have to bend the knee in judgment on this side of death, then your end is destruction. The promise of the scriptures is that he will crush the arrogance of the wicked. Turn your life to Jesus. If you are not a Christian, this is an invitation to experience the resurrected and the glorified Jesus. And if you are a Christian, set your gaze upon him and allow the glorified Jesus to bring about humility in your life and in your thoughts and in your actions. Embrace the life of humility that he has won for you on the cross. And in God's kindness, on the night before he was crucified, he gave us a picture of this in communion. He gave us a picture of perfect humility. He met with his disciples and he broke a piece of bread, giving them a physical picture of what was about to happen in his death and his humiliation. And then he took a cup of wine and he said, this is the wine, this is the cup of the new covenant. As often as you eat this bread and as you drink this wine, you are declaring his glory and then he is returning. And you know, we're not gonna be able to take communion right now. In two weeks, we will be able to do that. But I want us to just gaze on communion and be reminded of the glorified Jesus that gave his life for us because he is both our model and our means of experiencing humility. Let's pray together. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.